Welcome to episode 114 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up, my friend? I'm doing okay, and I am literally watching Major League Baseball in the background. So what could be wrong with the world, Leslie? I am so happy. It's opening day as we record this. We have a very special treat coming up for our, those listeners who also enjoy the game of baseball. Uh, with a special segment, we have Ken Burns on the show this week for not one, but two segments. So lots coming up. Ken but Burns before, and Lynn Novick. That's like the 17th time you corrected me. I'm a little bit excited just to have Ken Burns. So, And Lynn is terrific in the interview, too. So, yeah, you'll you'll have to forgive me for being excited. <laughs> anyway, it is opening it is opening day, opening week, and there is no question that the best people who we could have had come to talk to us are the director of PBS's baseball and the producer of PBS's baseball. So lots of baseball talk, but also lots of Hemingway talk. So really and truly, we should probably get down to business so that people can get to the interviews. That sounds like a transition. Leading off this week in headlines and broadcast pickups, CBS is officially bringing CSI back with original stars William Peterson and Georgia Fox. The network has also ordered comedy series Ghosts, starring Rose McIver, and renewed Big Bang Theory prequel Young Sheldon for three additional seasons. NBC has picked up the Matt Reeves-produced Ordinary Joe, starring James Walk, to series. Over at Fox, the, not, the network's long-gestating Lee Daniels script, Our Kind of People, has also been ordered to series. And... Last but certainly not least, ABC has renewed Dancing with the Stars for its 30th season. <sighs> so much dancing, so few stars. Uh, <laughs> over at HBO Max, lots of news this week. Colin Firth will replace Harrison Ford in the streamer's scripted take on The Staircase, which you can watch over on Netflix, the first Two-thirds of it are really great. Uh, the Warner Media back platform has also picked up its Head of the Class update from Ted Lasso boss Bill Lawrence to series. And the streamer and its cable sibling have signed a first-look deal with Barry Jenkins. In cancellation news, American Gods, the troubled stars drama from Fremantle, has been axed after three seasons. A wrap-up series or movie is considered a long shot, sources say. In casting, Amanda Seyfried will replace Kate McKinnon in Hulu's Elizabeth Holmes drama The Dropout, with lost grad Naveen Andrews set to co-star. And last but certainly not least, a Game of Thrones Broadway stage show is in the works from franchise creator George R. R. Martin, who, in related news, has inked a new five-year, eight-figure deal with HBO. Lots going on. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, it's a new month and time to take a look at some of the high profile TV launches coming up in April. We talked a lot on this show about how February and March seemed slower, likely the result of production delays from last year. But April already feels like things are picking back up. You've got a ton of scripted originals launching this month. Lots happening on streaming, Made for Love on HBO Max, Them on Amazon, genre drama Shadow and Bone, plus the Jamie Foxx comedy Dad, Stop Embarrassing Me, both of those on Netflix. John Stamos and returns in David E. Kelly's Big Shot for Disney+. Plus. 
The Mike Share produced Rutherford Falls launches on Peacock. The Mosquito Coast comes to Apple. And on broadcast, you've got big launches with Law & Order Organized Crime on NBC, Kung Fu on The CW, Home Economics with Topher Grace on ABC, Krista Vernoff's new show Rebel, the Aaron Brockovich drama on ABC, and then on Basic Cable, Chad on TBS. Dan, I know you have strong feelings about that one. Premium cable launches include The Nevers on HBO without Joss Whedon, Kate Winslet in HBO's Mayor of Easttown, and then a ton of returning series. The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, a Black Lady sketch show is back on HBO, Queen of the South returns for its final season on USA, Breakout, Everything's Gonna Be Okay on Freeform, You've got the final season of Younger, which moves to Paramount Plus, and then Godfather of Harlem is back for its second season on Epics. Dan, there's a lot of stuff to choose from this month, but what are you excited about? There really is. And we talked a lot in January, February, and March about relative doldrums. And it's all relative. And I emphasize relative because I feel like I'm still watching nonstop TV all weekend and writing reviews all week. So it's not like I ever had a period where I was looking for anything to do. But there were still several weeks where if you subscribe to my fantastic now see this newsletter at THR, there were a couple weeks in a row where I was kind of taken aback by the fact that between Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, HBO Max, there were several weeks where there were no new shows. And that was remarkable and, in recent history, unprecedented. And that is not going to be so much the case for April, thankfully. I, you know, you, you look and a lot of it has to do, obviously, with a lot of the shows that began production before pandemic and paused production for five, six months during pandemic and then got back into production, but now sort of want to be in the Emmy race. So you have something like, as you mentioned, Handmaid's Tale. Well, they started production on that season back when it was basically a different world and it got stopped. And there was a year where Hulu was kind of less in the Emmy race because of that. And it'll come back. And that's a big thing. But there are other returning shows that I have perhaps maybe more consistent affection for. I, I thought the first season of Black Lady Sketch Show uh, was really a terrific treat. And I believe that if memory serves, Robin Thede was technically probably our first showrunner spotlight interview, I, I, I believe. So uh, definitely it's a great chat regardless. We were still figuring out the format back then, but you should still but you give are it a right. Listen. You are right. That was our first showrunner spotlight interview from episode 31 from July 2019 and recorded in person at TCA. If you want to talk about another another lifetime ago. It was definitely another world. So that's so that's one really good show that's coming back that I love. I, I loved the first season of of Everything's Gonna Be Okay on on Freeform. I, I thought that was a a really special little show that I felt bad didn't make my top ten for uh, last year. It was certainly on my kind of shortish list because it was just a really funny, perceptive, cringy, terrific show. So I'm looking forward to watching those screeners, but there are just a bunch of really kind of big name shows coming this month, which there weren't so much previously. Uh, you know, under different circumstances, very clearly the Nevers would be perhaps the biggest thing coming this month because HBO would be able to go, hey, look, we have a female-driven action drama from the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the director of the first two Avengers movies. I mean, Good God. Instead, they now have a show where they can showcase a bunch of action and 
apparently it has no creator who they can mention. And that has definitely changed their promotion. Uh, the embargo on that is not up, but I will be able to talk about that one next week because they have sent out episodes. It's not like HBO is hiding the show. It's just that HBO has a show that is more complicated to promote than than previously. It's much easier to just promote, oh, look, there's Kate Winslet and she's solving crimes. You know, no, no one's going to be offended by that one. So Mayor of Easttown is, is sure to get, you know, conversation going. And I haven't seen that one at all, but come on. I've seen when the first is, two. It's very good. Okay. I was going to say, when is Kate Winslet bad at things? You know, exactly. She's, she's just, she's just good. So I, I have no question that's going to be good. But then there are just a bunch of other biggish name things. You mentioned Shadow and Bone. That is a beloved YA franchise. And if you look at the trailers, that Netflix has put out. On one hand, it looks very much like they're trying to go in the here's our next The Witcher, and that's obviously what they're aiming for. But also, based on the trailers, there's a lot of money in that show. And so, you know, they, they have a sense of, of scale for it. And uh, we are going to talk with the showrunner of that one in a couple weeks, so not going to tease anything there. Uh, Made for Love, another show we're looking forward to talking to the showrunner about, is is a quirky, high-concept show. And as I'll talk about it in Critics' Corner, Kristen Milioti is just such a, a freaking gem that, uh, that yeah. And then people who aren't necessarily going to be on upcoming podcasts, the showrunner spotlights, but have been. You have David E. Kelly doing the world of youth basketball in uh, Big Shot. You have Mike Schur producing Rutherford Falls, where we will talk to the showrunner about that. Goodness gracious, I'm just doing nothing but promoting upcoming podcasts. Rutherford Falls is interesting because American TV as a rule has not done anything with the Native American community. And so for a show that has a predominantly Native American cast, a Native American co-creator, et cetera, that is, that is really, it's Compelling. notable. Yeah it's, yeah, it's notable, it's important, it's progress, and the people involved as a rule also make funny TV. So those are all good things. I'm looking forward to The Mosquito Coast. I, I love the Paul Thoreau novel. I uh, really, really like the Peter Weir, Harrison Ford movie. So that's a pretty solid brand for me. I'm also intrigued by the family ties of it all because Justin Thoreau is Paul Thoreau's nephew. And so he's starring in it and it's a family affair. That's kind of cool. There, there's just a lot of stuff this month, even network TV getting, getting into business and Things have been slow. You know, CBS back in January had the premieres of Clarice and The Equalizer, and those were pretty big deals. But things did slow down on the broadcast front last month and the beginning of this month. But you mentioned you mentioned Rebel with the, uh, Katie Seagal. That is a that's a decent brand. Topher Grace has been a while for away from TV for a while, so that's something. Kung Fu is a slightly different, more interesting thing than basically just the CW doing another DC Comics drama. Though I'll talk about that in Critics Corner because it's still a little bit like that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff this month, and that's before you get into the amount of baseball that Leslie's going to watch. Uh, it's before you get into the amount of baseball that I'm going to watch, plus a new season of Top Chef premiering on April 1st. Uh, that is a that is a show that I believe I mentioned two weeks ago was one of the shows that helped get me through the early pandemic, just in terms of comfort TV. So. Yeah, a lot of, lot of stuff. This will not be a month where there should be weeks where we get to Critics Corner. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much nothing this week. So, you know, go read a book or something. Uh, but reading books is always nice. 
Up next. Number two. Movie theaters and theme parks are starting to reopen and in-person events are following suit. This week, organizers of San Diego Comic-Con announced that they would hold an in-person Comic-Con special edition. That was already eyebrow-raising. What raised even more eyebrows was when they decided they were going to announce it for, for some reason, a Comic-Con special edition is coming on Thanksgiving weekend? I do not understand this. It makes no sense to me, and I know that it also confuses you, which is why you and several of our great colleagues did some reporting on this. How are people responding to this as an idea being floated by the good people of Comic-Con? Not great, Dan. Uh, yeah, we uh, I, I did a bunch of reporting alongside friend of the five, Aaron Couch, and our fearless leader, Boris Kitt. We reached out to uh, networks and studios and movie studios and book comic book publishers and everyone in between, artists, et cetera. And the general consensus is, yeah, good luck. Um, you know, in addition to there being a big question of if it is actually going to be safe enough to have an in-person event, a lot of people are saying for a multitude of reasons, this is just not gonna work. Like it's just from like a practical standpoint, most people haven't seen their families in over a year. And Thanksgiving is a special holiday, obviously, I don't need to say that, but that's when everyone is looking forward to seeing their family again, since the holidays from 2020 were a wash. And yeah, the idea of having to sacrifice the first holiday season together to go to Comic-Con is not one that's going over well. And then you get into all the logistical part of, of what's going on here. So look, Thanksgiving is one of the most expensive travel weekends of the year. It's 100% bound to be bad this year, conditions permitting. But it, think of it this way. Most of these networks and studios and streamers and, and especially lower level artists and comic book publishers, et cetera, they have their budget for the year already in place. So when you get to the end of the year, you're sitting there saying, well, crap, now I got to spend money to get to San Diego, or now I have to spend money on a booth or talent prep, or we have to fly people out to get, you know, to get there. And then you, you get into it and like, look, even though the event is, is Friday through Sunday, you're going to have to, the load in, if you're a, a dealer on the convention floor is going to be on Thursday. If you have a Friday panel, you have to fly talent on Thanksgiving day to get them to San Diego. You have to send PR and security and everyone else to get there ahead of the panel. You, ha you have run throughs, you have all of these other things, all these logistical pieces that no one's going to want to do on a holiday. And from a fan perspective, like what? You're going to line up for Hall H on Thanksgiving and eat your turkey in line from the grass outside of Hall H? Like, I mean, come on. You know, so I see the flip side of this. Comic-Con International is a for-profit company that has another virtual event slated for this summer. They're not advertising this Thanksgiving as like the official big Comic-Con that's going to attract hundreds of thousands of people down to San Diego. What they are saying is this is likely going to be a regional event that is going to be smaller in scale because they've had two years, two summers of virtual events and they're a for-profit company and they need to get this back up and running. And it's look, it's good, probably going to be good for the, the local San Diego economy. But you're also also asking everybody in the in the neighboring communities that like, those are small mom and pop restaurants to work on a holiday where they pro would probably be closed and spending it with family. So yeah, it, it's it's not going over well. And the big question remains is if talent and producers will actually show up in person and participate. Um, no one has signed on just yet. Comic-Con 
International, if you look on their homepage, issued a response kind of to the growing backlash and said, look, we don't know that this is actually going to happen because we don't know what the conditions are going to be in November. But we wanted to get something in place if it was safe to do so. So, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I'm hearing from, you know, since, since they announced this on Saturday, which also, why are you announcing something on Saturday night? That's like the press black hole. Well, you're um, announcing it because you know that there's at least some right, chance that the reactions are going to be literally what your reactions are. Right. So since since announcing this, I've heard every single day from multiple people saying I've got clients or I'm a I'm a publicist and I'm not working or I'm a reporter for this outlet and I'm, I'm we are refusing to cover because this is our time with family. And, you know, from, you know, as someone who's covered Comic-Con for a long time, a long time, I used to go to Comic-Con when I worked at, at, at a comic book shop as a, as a kid and have to set up as a vendor. So, yeah, I my relationship with Comic-Con goes goes back to the early 90s. But the idea of, of this is just it's just not going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. But when you've got especially when you've got high end actors who are saying we're not going after a year of saying, like, I can do this virtually, I can record something in advance, I don't need to do this, which raises the bigger question, too. Like when things, you know, as things are starting to reopen, we talked at the top of the segment about theme parks, etc. You've had a year of publicizing things virtually. So what kind of talent is going to go back and say, oh, yeah, let me fly out to the Four Seasons and do, you know, an entire day of rotating interviews with different journalists when I can sit here and take an hour and do it on Zoom and have people come to me while I'm in my pajamas in my bedroom, you know, or in the living room having coffee instead of having to travel and sit through hair and makeup and do all this other stuff. So, yeah, in short, I would be shocked if this actually happens. Yeah, there there are too many reasons why this is peculiar and most particularly to me at least are the simultaneous facts of you don't know what the global health situation is going to be four months from now five months six seven seven months from now november there's no way of predicting that there's no way of predicting if we'll be in a first wave second wave third wave whatever and so putting this on the schedule even as a flyer is an odd choice. But while you can't guarantee that, as you say, you can guarantee it's Thanksgiving Day weekend. And so, yes, I, of course, if you're figuring it's going to be a more local event, then there are definitely enough people in San Diego and Los Angeles who are fans who don't particularly want to spend the weekend with their families, who are basically like, yeah, three hours on Thanksgiving will be just fine, whatever. But it still is a lot to be asking of a lot of people and to be asking of a lot of people in a way that requires a contractual order to get people to come. Like, why would you want to have a convention where you know that every person who's attending and talent is doing it against their will? Like, probably realistically, most things like this, you know in your heart of hearts that they're not necessarily doing it for their altruistic love of television and their love of being asked dumb questions and lines. But, you know, you have to be able to go, they like the energy of the fans. And of course they do. There's no question that if you are a, an Avenger or a CW star or whatever, you love being up there and hearing the shriek of an audience that loves you. It's that, of course. But under these circumstances, God, I, and just I, I can't fathom wanting to be in a room at a Hall H type crowded room or in an endless line of less sweaty because it's November, but still somewhat sweaty people. Yeah, there, there's no aspect of this to me that sounds 
even, and I don't want to say appealing, because there's definitely no aspect that sounds appealing, but there's no aspect of it that even sounds tolerable. I don't get it. Yeah, and then, not to mention, you you have New York Comic Con, which is happening six weeks ahead of this, so they haven't announced if it's going to be in-person or virtual or some combination of both, but... You're also promoting things that are coming out in December. And if you're a feature film, great. I'm sure the feature film calendar for December is always big. There's usually a ton of like Oscar nominated movies, a lot of tent poles coming out around that then. But for, on the TV side, yeah, it's holiday specials and repeats, you know. So maybe you're promoting stuff in for January, but then you've got TCA in January. I think it's slated for January. I, I It's hard to tell where things are are falling back on the calendar now, but yeah. So, and then you've got all these other networks are doing their own press days and they, they've done various virtual events, either for, through TCA or on their own volition. Yeah. It's a, it's a big question mark if anyone's actually going to participate and spend the money. And then, you know, from, you know, as, as we talk about spending the money, all these companies have been pinched by the pandemic, right? Disney has had, you know, theme parks closed for so long and without box office for so long. And now you're going to have to pay your employees holiday salary and pay all for hair and makeup and talent to travel when you've already been squeezed and you can do this online for what pennies on the dollar. I don't know. doesn't make sense. Anyway, I'm just beating a dead horse at this point. So moving on. Number three. It's time for our showrunner's spotlight. We haven't done any quote unquote nonfiction or documentary showrunners. And this seemed like a really good time to do it and two really good people to do it with. Our guests this week are two of the most prolific and acclaimed storytellers in the nonfiction space. Ken Burns has been nominated for two Oscars and his documentaries for PBS, including The Civil War, Baseball, and The War, have helped define our knowledge of those topics. Lynn Novick began working with Burns on The Civil War and with him directed Prohibition and the Vietnam War, and on her own, she directed the four-part, really terrific, College Behind Bars. Their new project is a six-hour PBS examination of the life and work of Ernest Hemingway. Welcome to the podcast, Ken and Lynn. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. So I'm not sure that any American author's image has been more in flux over the decades than Hemingway's. It feels like 25 years ago, the idea of, say, needing to validate or explain Hemingway might have seemed silly. And 25 years from now, the idea of wanting to validate him might seem undesirable. I'm curious how conscious you guys were of the flux in his image and how much that informed the way you wanted to approach his story. I think we've been acutely aware of how his public persona, which he created himself very consciously and purposefully in the 20s, 30s, and 40s as this incredibly masculine man who embodied, you know, hunting, fishing, loving bullfighting, many different wives, you know, just outsized life. And the things he wrote about, you know, sort of helped make him very successful in his time and subsequently have become problematic and got in the way, as one of the people that we interviewed said, of seeing his work and that the myth gets in the way of understanding the man and of also appreciating his work. So we were interested in looking at this from you know, many different perspectives and recognizing that who we are now is going to shape the questions we ask and the story we end up telling. Ken, did you have a follow there? No, I, I think that's exactly right. The most important thing to understand is that you know we're f- storytellers. And we took on telling the story uh, of Ernest Hemingway, which we've been thinking about for almost 40 years. And we decided to do it about 
nine years ago, eight years ago, and started working on it six and a half, seven years ago. So we don't really know that we're landing in a particular moment, but we know that aspects of that toxic masculinity, we would call it today, that was that Hemingway persona, uh, would be an impediment to a kind of broad acceptance. And that what we did not know was exactly who we'd find on the other side, but we knew we were obligated to pursue it. Somehow to either deconstruct or get around or get above um, the myth that he imprisoned himself in. Let's just remember that this was a, you know, this was a kind of um, trap that he accidentally sprung on himself. He created it to perhaps shield the world from certain vulnerabilities and sensitivities and anxieties and empathies and acute and hypersensitive observations about how nature was, about how men and women got along or didn't get along, about war. And so what's interesting when you're able to get through at least a few of these layers of the veils is you find someone who is been curious about the blurred lines, as we say, between men and women, male and female, that there's a gender fluidity in a couple of the stories for all the misogyny that accompanies the legend for all of the hyper and toxic masculinity that comes along with him, consciously created by him. There's also incredibly empathetic person who's able to put himself into several of his women's characters. And so what you have is a set of conundrums, a set of contradictions, a set of complications that don't defy easy categorization, which is what we're always interested in. We want to have an on-off switch, and, and there's none. And no one is immune uh, to, to these kinds of contradictions. And I think Hemingway is just, a, in some ways, a perfect topic for now. And, but, but you have to understand it. It's something we began so long ago that the now that we are in looks nothing like the now that we were in when we said yes to this. So our job, the discipline of us, and we we're impressed with his discipline, and it, a lot of it is similar to our own obsessing and obsessing and obsessing and working on lots of material, is to just focus on getting the story right and knowing if, we, if we're not looking for simple yes, no answers, if we're allowed, say Edna O'Brien in an innocent way, to not like Old Man in the Sea, where Mario Vargas Llosa <laughs> thinks it's one of the great works of literature. He's cracking up at the, at the excruciatingly painful lovemaking scenes in For Whom the Bell Tolls. She's crying at um, a Farewell to Arms. She's trying to tell us that you cannot dismiss Hemingway in any generation because of the durability of this, but also his ability to, as she said, get under the skin, to represent a kind of androgyny. That, all of this, you know, helped us as we searched. And, and we don't make films about stuff we know about. Our films are not telling you what to think that we came in. These are processes of discovery. We're sharing with you what we discovered. There's no test next Tuesday. It's just we're sharing with you a story that we're losing. We At some point, we had to set aside our baggage, the baggage of the present, the baggage of what we knew about Hemingway, and just figure out as filmmakers how to tell a good story. You know, when, when we first started talking about the project and then when we started really working on it, which was really seven or eight years ago, um, I remember asking... English teachers, you know, what Hemingway are you teaching? When, when I was in high school, I think when Ken was in high school, everybody studied Hemingway, I think. It just was universal. And we heard back a lot, oh, I'm not teaching Hemingway, or only I'm teaching Hills Like White Elephants, or, you know, and, and we would sort of delve into why. And that just raised some questions, to your point, that, you know, 
the literary canon, what is taught, what is valued, does shift over time. And we think we're in a really important and positive time when we're opening up who should be taught, whose voices should be heard, and making, not making room, but you know, questioning everything from a lens of a long history of certain people being privileged, other people not having a chance to talk. So, you know, Hemingway is part of the questioning, but we think he needs to be, he still needs to be part of this conversation. And the writing, the writing is just so good that it is indelible. It will, it it, it cannot be erased by whatever erasers we think we might be able to employ in the present or in some future moment, uh, Daniel, 25 years from now. You know, it's just, the contribution is so stunning. And and the uh, centrality of him to American literature in the 20th century, and then to by extension to world literature, as the people who populate our films suggest, is is pretty amazing. But it doesn't mean you cannot not get into all of these difficult aspects of him and hold his feet to the fire. Uh, you know, there are things that are redeemed, but not everything can be redeemed. And uh, there are things in this story that are inexcusable. And and we're pretty clear about what's inexcusable and what, what isn't. So, you know, you, you mentioned, Lynn, about talking with English teachers, but I'm wondering in a larger sense, how much research and prep do you do on a subject before you even pitch it to PBS? We don't pitch it. We tell them what we're doing. That's the, been the great thing. We just got things. We say, look, we're interested in the writer, you know, Ernest Hemingway, and, and we're going to do it. We end, we raise a, a huge majority of most of our money, you know, 80, 85% of our money we raise from outside sources, not PBS. So we're saying we're, we're going to be doing Hemingway and they, you know, I suppose they have the right to say, no, we're not interested in that. Um, but, but it, but it's, we don't pitch. We pitch ourselves and pitching ourselves requires a gut check. So we've been talking about Hemingway since the early 80s. Lynn came on in the late 80s and brought it up again. And Jeff and I, Jeff Ward, our writer, and I had already been talking about how the shape might be. And then that changed. And it wasn't that we weren't interested. We didn't have the moment in which we could say wholeheartedly yes. And when we did in the early uh, teens, we did, and and this is now the the fruits of it. So it's not. There's you know we we feel so lucky to have spent our entire professional lives in public broadcasting because there is not that kind of you know uh, you know pitching process per se. I mean, obviously you're going to them. We'd like to do this. You've written something, and 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 that's important. But it's we're the ones that have to be pitched. And if we can say wholeheartedly yes, then we'll figure out by hook or by crook how to do it, whether it's, you know, a, a kid trying to do the Brooklyn Bridge or the Civil War or, or Lynn and me trying to do baseball, whatever it is, we're, we're going to be working uh, hard to, to figure out how we tell that story. Uh, and just to piggyback on that, the research process is intense and it's ongoing through the entire production, but we do have a phase before we really get started in earnest. Um, Sarah Botstein, our senior producer, and I and our writer Jeff Ward primarily, you know, dig into the scholarship, the writing, who are we going to interview, who are our advisors going to be, what, you know, what's going to be in this big, huge pot that we're going to pull together. So it's, you know, the, the collecting phase is, is significant. And before we even sit down to expose one role of film, um, we've already become pretty well versed in the story. You know, Hemingway, it's a big shelf. There's many biographies, some of them are multi-volumes. And then the other thing that happened is that there's a, pro- a project ongoing to publish all the letters he ever wrote. And in his case, it's thousands of letters. And they're 
They were going to do six or eight or 10 volumes. Now they're up to 18 volumes. So uh, scholars have been collecting every letter he ever wrote. And these are incredible documents of the man in conversation with everyone in his life over time. And so we were able to you know, work with them to help us pull out the greatest moments from these letters. And that's a process that went on throughout the entire project because we would be working on a scene, wonder if he wrote a letter about that, call up Sandy Spanier of the Letters Project and say, what have you got? You know, and that's just one little example. So the research is voluminous. And then there's the archival research. So our team of producers did an incredible job going around the world to find images and footage and stills of him, but also of the events he lived through. So we could really represent his, the fullness of his life. And then the last part of the research was in the manuscripts. So we had access through the um, JFK Library Hemingway Collection in Boston to look at his original manuscripts and, you know, the way he revised and rewrote and worked over everything he wrote. And to see the scraps of paper with the ideas for titles for things or how he crossed out the first few chapters of Sun Also Rises or 47 Endings of The Farewell to Arms. So the research is just at the core of what we do. Um, to be able to tell the story, we have to learn it. And that's a uh, all-hands-on-deck process. And the key to what Lynn said, it's really true, it's how complicated it is, is that unlike traditional sort of templates, there's not a set research period, set writing period, out of which is a script written in stone that informs the shooting and the editing. We never stop researching. We never stop writing. And in fact, invariably, even though our process is subtractive, not additive, we're pulling away from the mass of material we have, we're inevitably on the last day of editing adding something new that we just learned, which was the case in this. Is there a different sense of urgency when you guys are working on something like the war or Dust Bowl or even baseball when you're trying to make sure that you capture these voices, these primary sources while they're still alive, rather than something like this where I believe there are only two people in the documentary who actually knew Ernest Hemingway? Am I right about that? That's correct. Uh, you know, in any film, I would say there is an actuarial urgency. No matter what it is, um, you know, we've, we're making a film uh, uh, with another team. I'm making a film on Benjamin Franklin. Now, he's been dead since 1790. Uh, there's no one living that we could interview that, that uh, did it. There are no photographs and no footage, as far as I can tell. Um, but it was really incumbent upon us to interview Bernard Balin, who is one of, was one of the deans of American uh, history. And uh, we interviewed him not far from his Harvard home and um, at 94, 95, and he passed away subsequently. But we have him to, to be able to speak directly to the, the themes in that. And so, you know, as Lynn will tell you, the first interview we did was with Patrick Hemingway. Uh, you know, and early on we did A.E. Hotchner. Uh, and then we needed to triangulate with other writers who've been influenced him by the scholars who spent their lives studying him, by the biographers who have written about him and, and understand him, by the people involved with the letters, with the manuscript. All, all of that becomes, you know, how we're going to do it. And then, of course, bringing the voices alive. Jeff Ward is working on a script, uh, a wonderful script, but its counterpoint is with Jeff Daniels' readings of the Hemingway work we've selected and uh, 
Mary Louise Parker and Carrie Russell and Patricia Clarkson and Meryl Streep reading the voices of the wives and Josh Lucas and Joe Morton doing other voices. So you've got a, a lot of people, a lot of elements that are contributing to sort of the, the wide band of the broad band of the, of the presentation that we're going to do. That isn't just uh, the visual material, but it's the oral experience as well. Then Peter Coyote reading the narration. In terms of the episode length, how do you decide on, on a with a project like this what the ideal length should be? I mean, when you look back at, at some of your past projects, I'm a huge baseball fan, and obviously nine innings, and then you did a follow up at the tenth inning. Yeah, okay, you know, you know, I have but, to jump in and say that when I came to work with Ken and he asked me to work with him on baseball, I believe he said we're going to do five one hours on the history of baseball. And I said, great, I'm in. That sounds like fun. That, and that had grown from the original idea that we would do like a 90-minute or maybe two-hour thing that would complement wow. the other things we'd done. And because we were doing five one-hours on the Civil War that turned out to be nine episodes and nearly 12 hours, we sort of realized it wasn't almost immediately uh, we were at at least nine one-hours, nine innings. And then, as you know, the seventh uh, episode, the capital of baseball, about the 1950s, Leslie, is, um, I think, like two hours and 40 minutes. It's, it is the longest thing we've ever done. And we used to show it terrified that people would fall out. And we had lots of stuff that we left out that we hated leaving out. And in the end, you know, and I still get grief from all the things that I've left out, particularly of episode seven, whether it's the 59 White Sox or Harmon Killebrew or, or this sort of stuff, which I love because, you know, when you make an 18 and a half hour film and people are telling you what's, what you left out, it's kind of, whew. but, you know, th these films talk to us. And I think that we've had many episodes that have run over just two or three minutes, which means PBS has to fill. You know, they'd prefer us to come within a normal stuff. We, we had originally thought this would be two, two hours, meaning two around 150s, somewhere around there. But, you know, we don't set the precise time because it is, it takes what it takes. And, um, and we realized pretty early on that it would have to be three. Uh, and in other films, you know, there was one in our, on uh, country music that we just did. And one of the episodes was two hours and 15 minutes. And there was no way I was going to be able to cut 25 minutes from it. And the head of programming at PBS at that point said, I'm sorry, you know, we're going to have to figure this out. We can't, you know, go over. And she looked at the at the episode and said, OK, going over. You know, we've had the same thing happening uh, with Muhammad Ali. It, uh, it just, it, it, these things take up a certain amount of time and the stories themselves dictate to us once they get started. And it, it's just, it's actually hard to predict until you've actually started doing what we talked about before, all that research and collecting the interviews in, in this case, or, and you know, how much are we going to, how much time would we spend on Hemingway's work as opposed to his life? And are we going to stop the movie and actually dive into, uh, you know, one of his great short stories and share that with you? In our original script, we didn't know. We have to sort of, it has to live in the editing room and we have to see how things play. But at the beginning, it's really an estimate and we reserve the right to, you know, find out as we do it. And that's an incredible privilege that we're able to do that. We recognize that that's not the case for everybody to have that chance to let the material breathe and live. And, you know, in the Vietnam War, we had an estimate, but we hadn't really fully understood what it would mean to have Vietnamese voices and what how much bandwidth they would take up 
in just even mapping out the story. So that grew a lot too, and I think partly because we just expanded our scope of what we wanted to tell. So it's a very elastic process, which we're very grateful that we have the chance to do that. Does Hemingway as a subject impose a different kind of linguistic economy just because of who he is? Because I know I watched I watch six episodes of this and I immediately go to my own writing and suddenly I'm like, okay, too many damn adjectives. Okay, too many damn multi-clause sentences. Gotta cut it down. Do you, do you guys examine your own language? Well, six, six hours, three episodes, not six episodes. Um, but, uh, you know, Jeff Daniels said exactly what you said at, at the TCA, the Television Critics Association. He said, I'm really careful about the adjectives I'm using. I'm really watching that. You know what? Um, Jeff Ward is an extraordinary writer and I'm the scratch narrator. I'm Peter Coyote up until, you know, the last five minutes of production, you know, and then Peter goes in and um, I read it over and over and over again. And I was really stunned by how great Jeff's writing was, but in no way was it a thrall to Hemingway. That is to say, if he needed descriptive adjectives or adverbs, they could be used. And it, it, it was not... Um, uh, it wasn't window dressing. That's the only thing you want to do. It's just got to work, you know? And so we're always carving things down and, and, and that's the work we do, which is why we appreciate Hemingway's, you know, diligent editing that he's, I mean, that's like almost, you know, uh, damning with faint praise. He's an extraordinary editor and he understands. You can even see with CGI, we're able to remove, you know, some of these uh, diacritical remarks that he's making and then reapply them. So you're there from the opening shot of the film, you're watching him correct his manuscript. That's his handwriting. And it's going back on, right? To something we had and we took it off so we could put it on to show the kind of minute process that he that he went through. Um, that was really, really important to us. But I, I don't think we've ever said, oh, now we have to speak in short, spare sentences and avoid adjectives um, as, as uh, Hemingway. Uh, you know, Hemingway is the most uh, uh, parodied writer of all time, right? People, people like, to, like to say, you know, the famous Hemingway novel that is not his is the shortest novel on earth, which is For Sale, Baby Shoes, Never Worn. Ken, I, th I did ask, we, I recently discovered that he did do that. That is his. I double-checked it the other day because I just wanted to understand where that came from. And Hillary Justice said that they found it. I meant to tell you this. I'm sorry. Here we go. That is a real Hemingway thing. So you should say that. He did say that. Great. You can give I'm him good. full credit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it gives me something different to say in the few remaining interviews we have. <laughs> In the, in, the, in the only 600 we have left before the blog goes. Hey, I feel, I feel like we are breaking news uh, here, so I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> you heard it here first. So let me rephrase that. You know, I think that the appreciation of Hemingway can come down to his own suggestion that the shortest novel ever written that would invite you in with the sparest prose possible was for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Six, six words that just imply six million words and a huge story. And that's Hemingway. He always talked about the iceberg theory of writing, that he wanted just one-eighth showing and seven-eighths would be down below the surface. And this spareness, the music that he's able to get in that spare prose suggests the meaning behind the words. And that is where, why he has that indelible uh, immortality. 
as as we're talking about running times, and you've already talked about your relationship with PBS and how you don't really pitch to them, uh, we would be remiss not to ask about the Grace Lee column and the Beyond Inclusion petition that specifically talked about the amount of Ken Burns volume on PBS. Has that caused you to give in, give any particular thought to that as a an issue or whether or not it is an issue? You know, we wholeheartedly support the objectives of that letter. We think it's just spot on. And we, I've been with public broadcasting because I've been so proud, among many, many other reasons to be with public broadcasting, of their efforts, continual efforts from 40 years ago to now about diversity and inclusion. But can we do better? Yes, we can. PBS can do better. We can do better. And we've committed to going. And as I said, we raise a huge majority of our funds from not from PBS. We're not taking up that. Uh, We're going to those funders and talking about ways where we might help direct their further funding to uh, uh, inclusion and diversity efforts. And that's exciting to us. So we just feel um, I pledge to work towards their objectives. But along those lines, has it given you consideration regarding collaborators you want to work with or even the stories that you can or can't tell? One of the things that was mentioned in, I believe, the uh, the Beyond Inclusion petition was about specifically whether the Muhammad Ali story is necessarily a story that should be coming from a white man's perspective. You know, um, I don't want to address uh, subject matter. That that I think is a a a, a really slippery slope. Um, but I will say this: that when it comes out as a film by Ken Burns or Lynn Novick, it does not represent the true story of the production. This is a gloriously uh, collaborative medium, uh, and and our producers and our editors and our assistant editors and our advisors and our consultants and our on-air talent represent a diverse group of people. And so all of the projects that we've done uh, have been informed by that kind of uh, collective. And so, you know, that's that's what we've always done. And we're just happy to, to continue to, to look at it and be, you know, as tough on ourselves as possible. You know, when you first began your relationship with PBS, they were really the only home for the kind of storytelling that you wanted to do. So, how conscious of are you right now of the state of long form documentary? I mean, when you look at the marketplace, it's like Netflix is in this space, HBO, HBO Max, all the different streamers, Amazon, everyone like the, the, the documentary space has just exploded in the last couple of years. Like how aware are you of, of what the marketplace looks like and, and what the competition is for this content? So in 1985, the New York Times, Vincent Canby wrote a thing about how explosive the documentary marketplace was. But the key word is um, that you've used is marketplace. PBS has one foot tentatively in the marketplace and the other proudly out of it. And so while we are aware of this wonderful renaissance that's going on, it is truly, Leslie, a golden age of documentaries and showing up in every possible platform. And we know tomorrow that Lynn and I could go to a streaming service or to a premium cable channel and get in one pitch as you're saying, all the money we need to do the tens of billions of dollars to do Vietnam or country music, another project I worked on, not with Lynn. Um, but the problem is none of those people would give us 10 and a half years to do it. And this is hugely important. We, ha- I've spent my entire professional life in a non-marketplace environment, consciously, 
deliberately. I am talking to you from a barn in Walpole, New Hampshire, where I have lived for 42 years when I realized that the marketplace would not support my aspirations to make the kind of films I've wanted to do. And so I moved up here where I could live inexpensively uh, and have continued to live in the exact same house I've lived in for 42 years so that we can do the kind of work um, that we do. And public television is the only place that any of the films that we've made could have could have been made. And so we're thrilled to see the sort of multiplication of particularly the long form, which we had to argue ourselves for. You know, nobody's going to watch. I was turned down for funding many times uh, on the Civil War, despite my track record of several, you know, two Academy Award nominated films, lots of uh, well-received films before the Civil War, um, because nobody was going to look at still photographs for more than an hour or an hour and a half, and here we were suggesting five hours. It ended up 12, and, and more than a few people watched uh, The Civil War. So it's it's been a very interesting thing to watch, and from our little perspective, the tiny little niche that, that we occupy, it's been uh, amazing. But public television has been the, the, the only place that we could have really practiced the kind of deep dives that Lynn was describing with the subject matter. So no desire to test the marketplace when your deal is up next year? Uh, I, I, it, it, I don't even think of it in that terms. I don't think of it a deal being up. You know, we've, we're actually in the, in the first few years of what is several projects that we want to be doing in public television. So I'm not going anywhere. I think the, I just want to add the other thing that I, I think is important is that we have control, um, creative control over the films. We're not taking notes in the way that I understand. And I'm sure is the case from executives who have ideas about how a story should be told or where the breakpoint should be or, you know, we, we make the film and we have a very collaborative process and we bring in the, the most um, respected historians and scholars to make sure it's accurate and, you know, meets PBS standards for um, accuracy. And, but then we create the film that we want to create. And that's a, I mean, that would be it's not wouldn't be possible to do this in any other way and there's only one executive producer and that's me right you look at other of these long-form documentaries there's 17 executive producers what does that mean just tell me what that means that's that's a marketplace phenomenon Executive producer in my book. And what's interesting in documentary and television is that the, the terminology ranges. Sometimes, you know, a producer is somebody who produces and directed. We make distinctions between producer and director and all that sort of stuff. But the person mostly responsible for raising the money. Well, Leslie, when she asked the question, she talked about how there are, there's been this explosion of other places that are doing somewhat similar long-form stuff to what you guys do. But when you look around at what's actually coming out, do you feel that it's all that similar? Like, for example, you've made 200-plus hours of documentary television, and you haven't dedicated a second to Ted Bundy. Does that feel at all <laughs> out of sync with the marketplace to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, we're getting tens of, you know, I think there's, this is, I said this the other day, is that I've, I, I've for years and years and years, ad nauseum, Lynn would, I'm sure say, said that, you know, PBS is the tortoise to the hair of all the other places. But, you know, inevitably the hair gets tired and goes to sleep. And we end up, it turns out, producing the best science, the best nature, the best public performance, the best news, the best, you know, all of that sort of stuff on the dial that betrays my age. Um, I, I think in some ways the internet and the streaming services have given sneakers uh, to the hair. 
But, you know, it, it doesn't mean, you know, we're drawn to what we're drawn to. And, and we, you know, we get with our long form series, tens of millions of viewers. And that mm. is great. PBS is the fifth or the sixth, depending on where Fox News is, largest network and growing, one of the few that's growing. And that's, that's a good place to be. It's not some people always sort of say, yeah, well, as if I'm going to graduate from PBS. I've arrived at PBS. I feel so happy that they would have me. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful family. And remember, I, I believe in the public dimension of that, the word public, the fact that it's not in the marketplace. And I also believe in the fact that the S doesn't stand for system. It stands for service. And that's hugely important to us. It's very important to Lynn. And so we've made, I don't want to say sacrifices. We, we're pigs and shit, you know? As Lynn said, you know, if you don't like our films, it's all our fault. We're not sitting there saying, well, we couldn't use this because they, they, the suit, the, 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 the servant, whatever it is, didn't want us to do this or didn't want us to do this. Or when it was at a hundred and, 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 uh, and, and 30 minutes, it was great. But at 118, it's not as great because we're missing that. I mean, we, if you don't like it, it's our fault. And that's the way we want to be judged. We don't want to spend our time with you making excuses. We have no excuses. I, I completely agree. I just wanted to say that I think it's also exciting to us that PBS, like the other platforms or services or whatever content providers, all those words, you know, has embraced the digital age and has a really robust streaming platform that's growing every day. And so our long form, I mean, that's why I think the long form has been successful in other places is because it is bingeable and we've all done it in different ways. And the fact that a long form documentary, which is a true story, which you might even know how it turns out, you know, you can, you know, one episode is done, start the next one. And we have been doing that already on linear television, but it's incredibly effective in a streaming context. And it's really wonderful to hear. You know, I remember when I, whether it was Civil War or baseball and the stations would replay over the weekend after the week broadcast and people could binge. But now people can binge whenever they want, wherever they want, on their phone, you know, um, in, their in their living room, in their bedroom, whatever. The, the, ex the access to the content is really, it's multiplied and expanded. And it's been wonderful just to see that. I remember we were... I think after the Vietnam series came out, I was on the subway and I saw somebody watching on their phone. And that was just totally thrilling at that time, you know? So just we see the, the way that with PBS is what's energetic use of digital. We're, we're reaching people we wouldn't otherwise reach on broadcast and that's only growing. And that's part of this larger landscape, which we're really excited about. To go back to the beginning of your, your question, Leslie, um, when the Civil War was coming out, I was doing the press stuff in the summer of 90. And all the critics said, this is really good, but no one's going to watch it. You know, Stephen Bochco has this new musical cop procedural uh, <laughs> called Cop Rocks. No one will watch it. And then when Baseball, the film that Lynn and I co-produced, uh, came out, uh, they were saying nobody's going to watch, uh, you know, 18 and a half hours on baseball. In fact, I'd been approached by... Uh, cable and wanted to know what it was next. You know, wouldn't I jump ship? And, and I said, you know, baseball, how long is it going to be? A couple hours? And I said, oh, no, it's going to be at least as long as the Civil War. And they go, oh, no. And then that was hugely successful. And then people came about... Um, about jazz, the next big series we did, and, and people asked about it. And we, they said, oh, no, African-American stuff doesn't sell. 
There's your marketplace again. And so, you know, we stayed with PBS and each time the next film was our World War II film. No one's going to watch it. It's the longest film ever shown at Cannes Film Festival. The National Parks, no one's going to watch it. But it was so interesting. When Roosevelt's, the next big series we had came out, nobody said that because by that time, everybody knew that the consumption of these things were not determined by broadcast. We were transcending those changing broadcast habits, but now we had new ones. And so nobody's ever said, no one's going to watch it. The Roosevelt, no one's going to watch Vietnam War. No one's going to watch country music. And they did. And, and it is tens of millions of people. And that's a, a good and robust sign. I mean, the other, the other piece is that these films live on in the classroom, which is really meaningful to us. We love, you know, we were on a, a, one of our Hemingway Conversations events the other day, and someone asked a question. I'm a teacher in South Miami, Florida, and he said, you have to know that every day in our classrooms, teachers are using your films to teach. And, you know, we do know that, but it was nice to hear directly from a teacher or from an educator. And with PBS, we have, you know, this is really, it's a, it's a core value for us as filmmakers that we work with teachers to create materials and to, you know, create clips they can use. And with a technology that's constantly evolving, adapting to how teachers work and what they need. And the pandemic has really shown even more need for all of this content. But it, it sort of speaks to the, I hate to use this word, but integrity of what we're doing. You know, we're, we're not just looking for eyeballs. We're actually trying to create something that helps people, us, helps us first and then our audience understand ourselves and our history better. And the fact that these films do live on in the classroom is the best reward that we could have. Today is a school day in the United States and uh, the Civil War series is being shown in hundreds of classrooms today, as it was yesterday and as it will tomorrow, Friday, before it'll take a break over the weekend. And that is for a 31-year-old film that and it, and you just multiply it by baseball and by jazz and by Lewis and Clark and by you know the Dust Bowl and you know other films that we've made that are in you know heavy heavy educational rotation. That's really exciting for us. For us, it, it doesn't have the kind of glamour of the marketplace. It's very much of the tortoise and not of the hare. <laughs> Changing gears real quick. Number four. You know, obviously, you know, you mentioned today is a school day, but today, as we record, this also happens to be opening day for the 2021 Major League Baseball season. You buried your lead, Leslie. <laughs> it's kind of a holiday in my home. Um, I've been a big baseball fan since I was I was 12 years old, born and raised L.A. I'm all about the Dodgers. There's my art of Clayton Kershaw back here. But, I, you know, I got to say, you know. What's interesting, too, is as you talk about the power of the repeatability of, of your work, like, look, your baseball st series airs every offseason on MLB Network, which many times, you know, as someone that that, you know, I, I grew up loving Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson, like my first book reports as a kid were on Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays and Jackie and 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 all of the, the these heroes of the game that I still idolize and. When it, when you see a league like MLB that's not doing enough to honor its past, repeating baseball during the offseason is is to me it's it's the the first step. But you know, having you guys on the show, it's impossible to not talk about baseball and the documentary. So 
I'm curious from your point of view, after an unprecedented season like 2020, are you tempted to explore that with an 11th inning, having already obviously done the 10th? I made a huge mistake after the 10th <laughs> inning. People said, you're going to do an 11th? And I said, well, I suppose, meaning no, but if the Cubs were won the World Series, yeah, right? Because that was the last remaining big, you know, domino to fall after my Red Sox won, which was, you know, one of the reasons we made the update of the 10th inning. Not the only reason, but many other things, steroids and strikes and money and, and uh, Yankees and Braves and stuff like that. So um, we... Um, yeah, there's there's one. And I think the pandemic season sort of adds yet another storyline that we could do it. The problem is bandwidth. You know, the older I get, the more projects I'm working on because I'm just greedy. You know, I want to do I have I, I, if I were given a thousand years to live, I wouldn't run out of stories in American history. There's just you know, you just have feel that urgency of time and you want to keep doing it. So it's finding that that sweet spot to do it. This is a really important day. And I would have been happy to talk from the beginning about about baseball. There's something different from now on for the next six months about life in the United States. And it's just, um, you know, the greatest game that's ever invented. And um, we love it. And, you know, there's, there's a moment in baseball where Gerald Early, who is a frequent on-camera commentator for us, he's a professor of history and literature at Washington University, he said that when they study our American civilization 2,000 years from now, and just think where we were 2,000 years ago, he said when they study American civilization, we'll be known for three things. The Constitution, baseball, and jazz music. They're the three most beautiful things we've ever produced. And, you know... It, at the time, it kind of put a smile on our face, but he was right. You know, our genius is at improvisation. And um, the Constitution is the shortest Constitution in the world. And baseball is, has this infinite kind of chess-like combinations of a simple stick and ball game. And we also know what is at the heart of, of jazz, which is improvisation, listening to the other, uh, the ultimate democratic expression. And so, you know, it's no accident that the Constitution's greatest test is the Civil War. And what we felt, what I felt was a trilogy, was the Civil War, baseball and jazz. People used to shake their heads and say, you're crazy. And, and when we were working on baseball, we said it's the sequel to the Civil War. Because the first real progress in civil rights after the Civil War was on April 15, 1947, when Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, made his way to first base, first base at Abbott's Field and changed the game. It could now be called the national pastime. And so we're very much into this sport as a, um, as a kind of, not metaphor is the wrong word, but as a kind of representation, good and bad, of the things we've been, the places we've gone. So if you want to learn about immigration, Baseball's a great place to start. Want to learn about the exclusion of women? Baseball's a great place to start. Want to learn about race? Baseball's a... Want to learn about the tension between labor and capital? Baseball's a great place to start, you know? All the normal stuff of American history, presidents and wars, they're there. They come along. They influence the game in some way, shape, or form. But, you know, it's something we return to. I mean, I'm just so excited. I'm worried, you know, it's been raining here, and I'm just worried that it's going to be rained out at Fenway. But, you know, it'll happen. One of the things that happened over the last year within the context of baseball that I think do suggest we might need to go back to it among, well, there's several things that happened, all the things Ken said. And in addition, as part of our extraordinarily important reckoning about race in America, 
I believe, relatively recently, the major leagues decided to count the records of the Negro Leagues as part of official records of baseball. When we were making our film, the idea that that could happen, it was, you would be laughed at. And, you know, so that speaks to a long overdue progress as, you know, we have so far to go. But all the records that we talk about in the film are now not quite right. Yeah. The status of who's the greatest hitter and who had the most home runs, all of that, you, everything has to be redone. Or Ted Williams 406 batting, you yeah. know. The fact that most people don't know who Josh Gibson or guys like Satchel Paige are is, is criminal. Well, they, don't, they didn't watch our film because right. I would say the central narrative of our baseball series is, in right. fact, the story of African-Americans negotiating the American experience. Whether it's Moses Fleetwood Walker and Bud Fowler in the 19th century uh, having to face Cap Anson's, you know, the gentleman agreement coming out of Cap Anson's racism. Um, and how is it a gentleman's agreement, right? To, you know, Rube Foster and the creation of the Negro Leagues to obviously Jackie and then, you know, the last person who'd played in the major leagues uh, and played in the, in the Negro Leagues um, in Major League Baseball was Hank Aaron who just passed away and who we count as a friend. And, and um, you know, it's been a long yeah. journey. Right. And his home run total is different now. Yeah. You know, so that just, I mean, it really, it just, that's, that's not a simple thing. It's, and, and the Hall of Fame is going to have to change the way they do things. I mean, the whole way the history is told really has to be reconfigured with this epic thing that just happened and should have happened a long, long time ago. Yeah. You add yeah. his... Yeah. It's Birmingham Black Barons, I think, was one of his yeah. teams. And uh, if you add that, he's now passed right. uh, he who shall not be named Barry Bonds, right? <laughs> as a as a longtime Dodger fan, I appreciate that you said it that well, way. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, we did a lot on Bonds in our 10th inning, and yeah. it's a very yeah. complicated thing. And I, yeah. I actually think that he may be the greatest baseball player of all time, but... There's some stories to be told. And um, my favorites are Mickey, uh, are Willie Mays and, and Hank Aaron. The 755 is the number that sticks in my head. I have to actually force myself to remember that it's 762. But if you add the Negro Leagues, you've got, you know, and, and we still haven't figured out Josh Gibson's total. Yeah, and those numbers, by the way, were Hank Aaron's home runs. And Satchel yeah, Page's yeah. wins. I mean, right? So Satchel yeah. Page's yeah. wins. We may be giving not the Cy Young Award, but the I Satchel mean. Page Award because they're may way more than five hundred and eleven or twelve, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I love this. I mean, it's great as a it's a great conversation, but it also just shows the not malleability of history, but history is not fixed. And so right. even the statistics of baseball, which are the holy grail of the game, and we you know we're taught from the beginning these are the numbers. This is what counts. Even that needs to shift sometimes if we shift the lens. And that's sort of a wonderful way to just, you know, remind ourselves that we're doing the best we can with what we know right now. And it's the well, only sport in which the numbers actually matter, right? <laughs> I mean, I because mean, if you say how many yards does Drew Brees have, right? Nobody can say it, but everybody knows right. how many home runs Hank Aaron has. And yet, you know, as much as those statistics and numbers matter, you still have to tell stories connected to them. There are no asterisks in baseball, nor should they be. It just requires, if you look up under 1919, it says the Cincinnati Red Stockings won the World Series. But I have got a story to tell you. <laughs> 
Well, presumably along those lines, if we're preserving history but acknowledging the warts and all of it, I, I have to assume that you would be in favor of the Barry Bonds and Roger Clemenses being in the Hall of Fame, having their own plaques with an acknowledgement of what they did, right? Or are you not? No, no. Huh. After they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I feel about Pete Rose. Pete Rose belongs in the hall? Definitely belongs in the hall, but I think it should be after he's passed away as a, as a kind of veteran's gesture. And, and, I, and I think I'm there uh, with Bonds and Clemens, uh, the most egregious of those. But, but there, there are statistics. And, I, and the sad thing about, uh, about both Clemens and Bonds is that they were in if they'd retired the day before they started taking performance-enhanting drugs. And that's, they're Hall of Famers. Yeah. You know, that's, they're, they're Hall of Famers. What do you yeah. got, Lynn? And same with McGuire, yeah. I think that we have more people have to answer for this than just the superstars who participated in this fraud, which is what it basically was. It's the owners, it's the managers, everyone who turned a blind eye to what was going on. It was so obvious. Some people got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. A lot more people were probably doing the exact same thing. They were. And, uh, right? And we don't know their names because they didn't happen to get a positive test. So, yes, we have to hold the people accountable that we know, and they should they have face consequences, but it's too easy, I think, to just, you know, not think about the responsibility of the people who ran the game. And a society, too. And the union. And the union. And, and the union. Yeah, the union. But the society, too, as, as yes. John Thorne, baseball's historian, said, you know, we're in a culture where you take a little pill, you know, for everything right. that you want. You know, if you're sitting there and half the ads at a baseball game are for Viagra, uh, you know, uh, what, are, what are you saying? That a any performance can be enhanced. And, you know, uh, is it a wonder you know, and then you've got the guy who's the, you know, the short stop who's going to get, you know, the difference between having three years in the majors or seven and what that second contract means uh, wow. to him and his family. And if he gets 16 extra hits a year, he's suddenly getting, you know, uh, eight, eight figures, uh, you know, for uh, a long time. You know, there, the economic dimensions to this, the, the moral dimensions to this, the individual responsibility, the, the global responsibility that, that Lynn is suggesting, these are all things that factor into this. And we're talking about this simple children's stick and ball game. Right. And, and on that note, I, I, I definitely want to ask you about the 2017 Astros, or as my friends and I like to call them, the Trashros, who, who, of course, you know, the players get immunity, the managers go down, the GMs go down. You know, some of those people are back in baseball, but like, Leslie, Leslie, where do you where do you fall? I mean, was that fair to give them immunity? You're starting at the wrong place. You're starting way, way, way too late. It's your it's the it's the amnesia of our media culture today. Start with Bobby Thompson. We know the Giants stole the sign. We know that Bobby Thompson knew what pitch was coming from Ralph Branca. Of course, that's the shot heard around the world for baseball, non-baseball fans. And that sent them into the World Series after a three-day playoff in which the Dodgers had been leaving, fell behind, came back up to tie it. They played three games. The Dodgers were winning. And they had a sign stealing thing so that we know that let's we, we have to we have to do we have to start at all of these places. And then that becomes parlor games. We're not going to change that. We're not going to change that. And I can't affect I am not a baseball writer, so I, I can't vote for it. And, and it might be that that Bonds and and um, and, and Clemens will get in uh, maybe shilling. Who, who knows? Right. It's just we're just going to have to see. But. 
the point is, this has been going on from the very, very beginning. And that, by the way, that 1919 story is about, um, you know, Chicago White Stockings who, through the series, took payoffs from gamblers and uh, through the World Series. They were by far yeah. the better team. And it's not to say that the better team can't be beat. We've seen that happen in, in 13 when the motley Red Sox beat the juggernaut Cardinals. You know, nobody expected that to happen, you know. When I think about the steroids and the the impulse to take these drugs, I I am reminded of just, you know, these are men who do incredible things in their youth. And as they get older, they can't do them anymore. And they're offered potentially, I'm talking about the Clemens and Bonds or... or You're not talking or, about Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> not at the moment. <laughs> um, right. So it's it's the loss of physical ability is when that is your job and that is what you are famous for and that is what you do best and that is what people love you for. You know, I've seen from meeting so many older players, retired players, there's something kind of sad about that loss. And I can, I guess I'm just saying I can have compassion for the desire to play one more season, to keep it going a little bit longer, even outside of the money of just having had that taste of what this can be and you see it slipping away from you. I, you know, we had the chance to get to know Doug Glanville um, while we were making our 10th inning, and he was just talking about the temptation to take steroids because he couldn't run as fast, because he got more injuries, because he just knew it was slipping away. He'd made money, had a good life, but, you know, he wanted to stay in the game. And you can't. That's just, it's not possible. And so here's a little pill or a shot you can take. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying I think there is a human dimension to this. Yes. Um, if you look at our 10th inning, the the last chapter, more or less, is essentially delving into the fact that these are very human decisions, however flawed that they might be. They're completely understandable. And what is required is a degree of suspending of judgment and a certain amount, as Lynn is suggesting, compassion entering in. You can't, you can't to, to square the circle, you can't actually approach Ernest Hemingway without that. And you can't approach almost any subject that we've ever undertaken without that ability to tolerate that undertow and the contradiction. You started earlier to describe yourself, I believe, as a baseball Calvinist, and I think that I think that there's probably an assumption that when it comes to issues or innovations in the game, that you would be more likely to be a purist. But given the amount of experimentation and attempted pace of play and all of that alterations that the game has tried in recent years, are there things that we would be surprised to discover that you're actually in favor of, or are you like keep the damn game the way it was in? when they started playing rounders in the 1860s. Well, no, no, I'm not that. I mean, people come to me and they say, well, you know that round, uh, cricket and rounders are games. The Brits say this to me and I said, yeah, these are, this is a wholesale improvement on those two games. Um, and I mean that sincerely and definitively. No, I, you know, I'm a purist, I guess, uh, but I accept the, the DH in the American League. And if somebody took it away tomorrow, I would be overjoyed. But, you know, it's there. I don't think it's going to go away. I would really hate for it to come into the National League. And I think, in a way, the, the, the alternating of it within the World Series adds another dynamic. But it's, I'm not interested in that. I like to play, I think it should be played on grass. You know, uh, I, I just, I, I think that. And I don't like all these things to speed it up. To me, it is an incredibly dramatic thing. And I, you know, if, I, if I'm going by a park and there's a softball game going on, I, my, I, my foot eases up on the accelerator. All I want to live for is to see that pitch in motion. 
like I'm going back and forth. I don't really actually know whether they swing and miss or they hit, it's a foul, it's a hit, whatever it is. It's just the idea of the, the pitch going in is just this wonderful, you know, the short happy life of me. <laughs> the, our, our listeners could not see, incidentally, how quickly Lynn's thumb went down on the designated hitter. Do you have a designated hitter rant you want to go on? No, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to hear it. I hate the designated hitter. <laughs> I, I really hate it. And it's a business decision based, I yeah. think, on union yeah. rules more than anything. It's, it's not. It's always a business decision. Everything's a business. It's the yeah. game is great because of business decisions. The, when know. it when it went professional in 1869, people lamented the death of baseball, yeah. and it's been only better from then on so that you can't divorce it from the yeah. fact just like country music so many of it of people lament the you know the business decisions but the business decisions are as much the engine of growth we should probably end with our last question that we like to end all of these interviews on which is what have you guys been watching on tv and enjoying my uh 10 year old gal got me to watch um which I never do anything like this. I'm, I'm news and sports and then my own work or reading, right? She got me to watch uh, The Good Place. All, you know, four seasons, 52 episodes, whatever it was. I just loved it. And I loved doing it with her. And last night she said, I want to watch a movie. And I was going, I had had a really long, hard day. And I said, oh, God, it's going to go past bedtime. She goes, no, it's relatively short. So we watched the animated film Sing. And um, th that was joyful. I, I, you know, there are very few regular TV shows that I watch besides news and sports, you know. So it's just, it's the luck of the draw, whatever happens. And, you know, I tend to watch movies, you know, uh, when, I, when I can, feature films. Uh, when I can, but, um, you know, of, of the guilty pleasures and I'm not guilty about it. I, I think, uh, diners, drive-ins and dives is one of the greatest shows. I cannot stand anything else on the food network. Nothing. <laughs> They're all competitions and I hate competitions. I love food and I love people who love food. And I love this weird guy who likes all kinds of people making all kinds of food. And to me, it's as democratic and as ecumenical as you could possibly want. And, and, and if you're trying not to over overeat. Um, watching a show about food is a nice way to sort of have a, a vicarious thing. And Lynn? Yeah, well, I really miss going to the movies in the pandemic. I mean, I didn't go that often, but going to a movie theater and sitting with other people and watching something on the big screen is one of the great joys of life. So I'm looking forward to that coming back. So in the meanwhile, I've been trying to fill that void with uh, a variety of things. My partner and I have been doing a lot of streaming of um, non-American content. And I can't explain exactly why, but I think it's going to other countries and going into other worlds. So we watched Lupin, the first five episodes. That was mind-blowingly good. I just was so devastated when it was only the first five episodes and we have to wait till the next five. But I really was taken with that show of just the critique of French uh, you know, society and the daring do of the main character and kind of the heist all of it, just so beautifully, elegantly done. All oh, right, so good. So that was one of the highlights, I would say. And then we got sucked into and really loved a multi multi season uh, Swedish show called The Restaurant, which I highly recommend. I was sort of dubious because of the name, because I don't get it. What's the, but in the, it, it actually has a different title than Swedish, but it's about a multi generational story of a family in Stockholm. It starts right after World War II on VE Day, and comes up to relatively recently and it's a it's a like like 
anything serialized, it's like a long novel. You just dive into this world. You get to know these characters and it's beautifully told. So those are my two. And then just to wrap up, uh, Ken and Lynn, who are your picks to win the World Series this year? Uh, Boston Red Sox. <laughs> I, you know what? I, as Lynn would tell you, I would have. I, this is the first day she's seen me without my Boston Red Sox knit hat on. My hair is so long, COVID hair is so long that I needed to keep it out of, out of my eyes. And I literally thought, why of all conversations do I not have my knit hat with the Boston B on it? Um, I don't have a pick to win the World Series, but I'm hoping it's the Yankees. <laughs> Thank you guys both so much for joining Thank you us. Both. Thank you. Hemingway airs April 5th through April 7th at 8 p.m. on PBS. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Made for Love on HBO Max, Law & Order Organized Crime on NBC, The Serpent on Netflix, Chad on TBS, and you just heard our interview with Ken and Lynn about Hemingway on PBS. Dan, what's worth watching? Lots of stuff this week. Lots of stuff. Made for Love has already premiered on HBO Max. And as I mentioned in our April preview, I'm just such a fan of, of Kristen Milioti. Um, from even when she was the salvageable thing on the closing seasons of How I Met Your Mother, uh, from the not particularly memorable sitcom A to Z, from her episode of Black Mirror, uh, Palm Springs on Hulu, she is so good and so reliably good. And she is the perfect actress if you want to build a wildly high concept, crazy series about both earnest romantic love and weird ass scary technological innovation. And that's what Made for Love is. Um, it is funny and quirky and she is wonderful. And a lot of the other cast is great. Ray Romano plays her father. She is terrific. Billy Magnuson is a really underrated actor. Um, and he is very funny. You have Dan Bacadal in, a, in as close to a badass role as Dan Bacadal is possibly capable of playing. It's, it's a show with a lot of really good elements as an ongoing TV show. I'm not sure I was really invested in where it was going, but also at half an hour per episode, I don't need to be invested hugely. I, I think that's that to me is really and truly one of the biggest attributes of this show is episodes are 25 to 30 minutes and they don't overstay their welcome. And in this day and age, I am truly, truly appreciative. It's also told in a jumbled up style, but it's told in a jumbled up style that makes sense. As opposed to Netflix's The Serpent, which tells the true story of a serial killer who preyed on backpackers and hippies in Thailand and India and Nepal in the 1970s. It is, again, a true story. And it is just about the worst possible way to tell this story imaginable. It is remarkable how many bad, bad decisions were made in the telling of this story here. Uh, it is not just in medias ray, uh, jumping forward and backward in time. It's jumping forward and backward in time, constantly telling you using on-screen text where we are in time, doing it like 25 times per episode. It is such a good way of sapping a great story of any suspense or or drama. There there are some recognizable people. Tahar Rahim is a is a great French Algerian actor. He's not perfectly cast here as Charles Sobrage, the the serial killer. He's still better uh, cast than Jenna Coleman, a British actress who basically had to learn French to play a 
French-Canadian woman who was part of Sobrage's harem, basically. Um, you, you could also have just cast a, a French actress, but what do I know? There, there are a lot of weird accents throughout here. It's eight hours. Each episode is basically the full hour. There is a really good four or five hour miniseries about this horrible man and the horrible things he did. You have to look really hard to find it in this. It is, it is a lot of bad storytelling for a good story. Um, Chad, the first episode spends about a third of its time uh, making jokes about a sexual assault involving a teenage boy played by a 30 something year old woman. Um, I, I was so irked by the first episode that I'm not watching anymore. There, there just have to be limits. Uh, the thing that Nassim Petrod, who's incredibly talented, I, I think she is great and I am all for her getting a vehicle. And, the, and this show, it's, it's also worth noting, has been in the works for years. It was originally developed by Kevin Riley when he was at Fox and he brought it with him to TBS. And of course, he's no longer there by the time this is launching. Yeah, it is. This is this is stale and bad. It was put into development before uh, Hulu's penis, sorry, Hulu's Pen15, whichever you prefer, <laughs> uh, started doing basically the exact same thing well. So I'm going to tell people for the thousandth time, Pen15 is a fantastic show that people should watch. This is a skippable one. Uh, Hemingway, I'm not sure it's an exactly perfect match of storytellers and story. But the thing I know is that I came away from the six hours very much interested, very much informed, and very much wanting to simply set aside the 15 books I'm currently reading and do a full reread re of Ernest Hemingway. And that, to me, is a thing of a lot of value. It, it does leave you saying, I would like to re-experience a great writer's work and to experience it with both its nuance and its very, very problematic elements. Some of it might be good. Some of it might not be. I, I think that I think that's a very worthy thing about it. And uh, finally, you didn't mention it because you weren't sure if I was going to get to it. But uh, but the CW is premiering its kind of new kind of take on Kung Fu next week. Uh, the the latest of 8000 shows executive produced by Mr. Greg Berlanti. Uh, and it's not Kung Fu. I mean, basically, this has no similarities whatsoever to the 70s drama, which is not a bad thing because it's not like it's sacrosanct. You, you can change Kung Fu. I'm fine with that. It just doesn't necessarily have a firm narrative thrust. The action scenes are fun and the cast is really, really likable and really, really appealing. And so... To me, those are the reasons I'm going to keep watching episodes, is I like the cast, I liked the overall tone of it, I don't know that I care about the story, and I feel like I have to say this, it looks cheap as hell. And there are better and worse ways to use a CW budget. And if you look at the shows on the CW, there are some shows that look really good, there are some shows that when they have failings in budget, they find a way to maximize it and make the most of it. Something like Legends of Tomorrow does a tremendous job of looking expensive when it wants to and looking endearingly inexpensive at other times. This show looks cheap, and I wonder what could have been done with twice the budget that would have made it a vastly better show because there's there's just there, – there has to be a – 
there has to be a way where you're making professional productions if you're if you have a platform as big as the CW and there there are parts where scenes are just flatly staged and badly lit and where there are special effects which I assume probably will get tinkered with a little bit before premiere from what I saw but where they aren't suddenly going to become good uh yeah th- this is this is a show that with twice the budget I think really actually could have been a better show a much better show and that's not always the case so that's a lot of TV to talk about, and some of it even you might want to watch. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Christina Lee of HBO Max's Made for Love. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. It really does. We're always happy to see you guys and to chat with you guys on Twitter. If you like something, let us know. If you hate something, let us know too. If you have questions for a future mailbag segment, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Go Dodgers! <laughs>